The reading is from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, and starting at verse 57, and it's on page 1,000. Page 1,000. Starting to read at verse 57. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go, make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. After the Sabbath... At dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, 
We will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, it's worth uh, reminding ourselves of the evidence for the resurrection and, and kind of learning these things. Uh, and, and so when it comes up in conversation, um, you know, we, we know what to say uh, and we can, uh, you know, intrigue and, and challenge uh, people. That's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to think again about the resurrection uh, and the evidence uh, for it. Now, to who of you saw the voice final uh, last night? Um, I have to confess, uh, I watched uh, some of it. Um, and um, in one section, they were taking questions um, from people at home. And a guy called Adam uh, brought a question. Uh, and Rita, one of the voice coaches, put it to Will, I am. Um, he's about to come up. <laughs> he may come up. There he is. American uh, hip-hop star, is that right? Still not quite sure what he does, but... Um. <laughs> and they asked him, uh, if you could choose any superhero power, which one would you have? And he, re he replied, I would choose control over particles. Well, there was stunned uh, silence. Uh, and Rita said, what? You mean like uh, body particles? Um, and he said, no, particles... Uh, as in things that make everything, you know, things that make everything, including atoms, uh, which was received by further incredulous silence uh, by the studio audience. Maybe they couldn't cope with a, a rapper talking about um, particle physics late on a Saturday night. Or maybe they realised that what he was really asking for was the power of God, control over the particles that make everything. Well, what's that got to do with Easter? Well, it's at the heart of the Easter claim, isn't it? That someone who lived on earth did in fact have control over particles. So much so that he rose from the dead. And this claim has been from the beginning at the heart of the Christian good news. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Oh, sing hallelujah. Christians have been singing and saying that all over the world uh, today uh, and have been doing so for hundreds of of years. But the question is, is it true? What's the evidence for such a claim? Is Easter true? It's not normally a question uh, that we ask. Um, that's Professor Norman Anderson, for former professor of uh, Oriental Laws at the University of London. And um, he put it like this, most people haven't got the slightest desire to attack the Easter message. 
So our politicians, including the Prime Minister, uh, have been saying nice things about the message of Easter this week. Um, to them, it's a beautiful story, full of spiritual meaning. Uh, why worry, then, whether it is a literal fact? Well, Anderson continues, but we miss the point. Either it is infinitely more than a beautiful story, or else it is infinitely less. If it is true, then it is the supreme fact of history. It means, doesn't it, that Jesus really is who he said he is and in charge of all. And so to fail to adjust one's life to its implications means irreparable loss. But if it is not true, if Christ be not risen, then the whole of Christianity is a fraud, foisted on the world by a company of consummate liars or at best deluded simpletons. Well, that's uh, Professor Anderson. But the Apostle Paul put something very similar, uh, writing to the Corinthians about 25 years after the events of Easter. He said, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. That's 1 Corinthians 15 uh, verse 14 and following. So Christianity stands or falls on whether Jesus was raised or not. But what does it actually mean to claim that he rose from the dead? Now that might seem a really obvious question. Uh, the claim is that a man died uh, and then came back to life again. But actually I wonder if you realise that the, the Bible's teaching about resurrection is far more uh, than that. What, what did the people of Israel understand uh, by resurrection. Well, unlike the ancient pagans, the Jews, uh, most of them anyway, believed that one day in the future, the physical creation, which has been marred by our human rebellion and rejection of God, uh, this physical creation would be remade uh, and perfected. And when that happens, all the dead will be raised physically, either to condemnation uh, or for those in right standing with God, uh, to have new life forever. Death destroyed forever. And this is a, a unique belief that comes from the Old Testament, from prophets like Isaiah uh, and Ezekiel. Uh, it's a unique uh, Jewish belief. None of the other people of Jesus' day believed in this physical hope. So um, that's... Uh, Professor N.T. Wright, describing, summarising the uh, beliefs uh, of the day for Greeks, Romans, Persians and all the other ancient peoples. Death meant a one-way ticket to the spirit world. If they believed in life after death, it was shadowy uh, and spirity. But the people of Israel believed in this glorious resurrection. In fact, you could sum up their beliefs uh, about the afterlife as they believed in life after life after death. Well, the first Christians, being Jews, believed this as well. But they added this remarkable claim that one person has already undergone this resurrection. One person has already entered into this eternal life of the age to come, risen physically, never to die again. And no Jews, up until Jesus' time, ever believed this. Even uh, think of those people in the Old Testament like Elijah, uh, or Enoch, uh, that didn't uh, die uh, properly. Uh, they, they somehow went straight to heaven. They didn't believe that that was resurrection. Uh, the resurrection was only something 
uh, that was to come in the age to come. So the first Christians were proclaiming to the world a unique new belief. It was totally Jewish in believing in a physical resurrection, but totally Christian, if I could put it that way, uh, in believing that Jesus had already uh, done it himself. So here's a slide with the um, kind of different views uh, of the afterlife on offer uh, around Jesus' time. The question is, what on earth made uh, the first Christians take on this extraordinary new belief, one they were willing to die for? Well, Matthew's Gospel uh, is one of uh, four Gospels, uh, and in total six Christian writers in the New Testament who, who documented some of the eyewitness claims that Jesus had risen. And as we look at Matthew's account, we're going to um, think uh, about the main reasons he and the others uh, were convinced that Jesus really rose. We're not going to look at every detail uh, in Matthew's Gospel, and we are going to consider some other things uh, as well. But first, uh, the first claim is this. After his crucifixion, Jesus was buried by Joseph of Arimathea. So there's the four things that are on your handout. The Gospel accounts all describe how Jesus died. And they give lots of little details, uh, eyewitness details, uh, that back that claim up. It's a claim that uh, Jewish historians like Josephus uh, and Roman writers around the time uh, also record that he died uh, under Pontius Pilate. And then all the early Christian documents emphatically record that he was buried Uh, So Matthew says, As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph. He'd been a disciple of Jesus, and he went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Well, Matthew puts it in a very matter-of-fact Uh, unlegend-like way. Mark, Luke and John add that Joseph had been a member of the Jewish ruling council that had condemned Jesus to death, but he hadn't agreed with their decision, and in fact he's a secret believer. And out of reverence for Jesus, Joseph makes available his own pre-prepared stone tomb for Jesus' burial. It's a remarkable act of honouring him. It's also a remarkable risk uh, that he took. Now, it's highly unlikely uh, that the Christians would have fabricated, isn't it, uh, that a prominent member of the Jewish council that condemned him to death did this, because such a story could easily uh, be denied and proven to be wrong. But also, uh, it strikingly fits with what Isaiah said, remember in those classic uh, verses in Isaiah 53, speaking of the death uh, of the servant to come that he was assigned a grave with the rich. Well, that's Matthew's first step uh, in telling us about the evidence for the resurrection. Jesus was buried by Joseph of Arimathea. But then second, the following Sunday, the tomb was found empty by some women followers. Matthew records some important background uh, for us from verse 62. The next day, uh, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. So they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. 
So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he's been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go, make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. But on Easter Sunday morning, the tomb was empty. The women came early uh, to anoint the body with spices. In verse 2 of 28, Matthew continues, there was a violent earthquake. An angel of the Lord came down from heaven. Uh, it went to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. Its appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid. For I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Well, I wonder as we had that read, if you noticed what I think is a bit of a surprise. Maybe, maybe you, this is obvious to you, uh, but it's not always been obvious to me. The tomb was thoroughly sealed uh, and guarded, as secure as it could be, humanly speaking. But when the angel came down and opened it, it was empty. Jesus has already got out. He's got out without breaking the seal, without disturbing uh, the guards. As he will do in other accounts, in Luke and John, he's passed through walls. He has demonstrated amazing power since he's been raised from the dead. He really has the ability to move, to control particles. So this is saying, isn't it, that Jesus' resurrection was not a resuscitation. It's not that he's just revived his body uh, and his life has continued as it was before. No, he's got a new life that is transformed. It's physical, but his body is gloriously more powerful. And notice three more things about this empty tomb that Matthew points out to us. Again, we've got this description. Although it's dramatic, it's related simply and plainly and not like a legend. In fact, we have got some legendary accounts of the resurrection to compare with the Gospels in what are called apocryphal writings. Most of these were written uh, a little bit, a bit of time later. And it's actually quite worth reading uh, one or two of them to see how completely different they are. One bit I read of something that is so, the so-called Gospel of Peter. I was reading it this week. Uh, it has Jesus uh, and the angels coming out of the tomb together and they are described as as high as the heavens, so that kind of giants. Uh, and then this cross follows them out and the cross starts speaking. Uh, it's full of all kinds of bizarre uh, and fanciful details. But the actual Gospels that we've got are rather plain and unembellished. In fact, they're exactly what we'd expect, aren't they, if it was based on eyewitness testimony. Second, did you notice uh, it was women uh, who are the first witnesses of the resurrection? And that is quite interesting because in the first century Palestine, uh, a woman's testimony would not have stood up in their courts. It was considered second-class evidence. And so if you were inventing this story, uh, you would not put the first witnesses as women if you wanted to persuade people that it was true. So if you think about it, the fact that they are women suggests that uh, that's actually what happened, because uh, Matthew uh, records that. 
And then third, uh, Matthew also mentions an alternative story uh, that was doing the rounds uh, amongst the Jews of his day. And that's that the disciples stole uh, the body. It's down in verse 15 of chapter 28. Uh, The soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed, i.e. they spread this story that the disciples stole it. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. And that also is quite interesting, isn't it? Because Jesus' enemies, uh, those who were opposed to him, never denied that the tomb was empty. Uh, Of course, uh, they had to come up with a pretty desperate alternative story. It means accepting the rather embarrassing uh, idea that a bunch of Galilean fishermen came and outwitted or overpowered uh, Roman soldiers in the night. Unlikely uh, indeed, isn't it? Well, others have come up with other uh, non-supernatural explanations for the empty tomb. Uh, The Jewish authorities stole his body, but if you think about it, that can't work. Uh, In a few weeks' time, the whole of Jerusalem uh, will be ablaze uh, with people claiming uh, to have seen Jesus uh, and many uh, turning to him again. And the authorities could have squashed all of that in an instant uh, by displaying the body. Some have suggested that the women got the wrong tomb, but it's interesting that each of the uh, gospel accounts are keen to mention these angels uh, and are keen to mention the place uh, where he lay uh, in the tomb. In particular, John talks about the grave clothes inside. And John says it was the way the grave clothes were laid. Uh, They were laying down uh, with the headpiece slightly separate, as if his body had just come out uh, and left them there as they were. Uh, when they wrapped around him. And it was because of that, uh, John says, that he believed. Well, others have suggested uh, that Jesus uh, didn't really die. This has been uh, suggested in around about the year 1800, uh, so a long time after the original events. Uh, and some people speculated that he didn't really die. But of course, that's got quite a lot of problems uh, if you take uh, that view. It means that the Romans uh, made a major blunder Uh, The death squad was ineffective, which is unlikely, uh, given how good they were uh, at doing these sorts of things. Uh, And in fact, John's account, uh, with the spear being thrust into his side and blood and water flowing out, is meant to tell us that he had died. Blood and water, that kind of clear fluid, uh, doesn't build up in the body uh, when you're alive. It suggests a separation of fluids Uh, and that fluid collecting uh, in the chest or around the heart or something like that. In any case, can we seriously believe that someone who's gone through a Roman flogging, which was incredibly vicious, um, who's been crucified, uh, who's got significant wounds, who's been put in the tomb and left for three days, uh, would be able to revive, uh, neatly take off the grave clothes that were wrapping him around and lay them out flat as if he'd just got out of them, like John saw, uh, would be able to roll away this big stone and would be walking around uh, the country persuading people that he'd conquered death forever. Rather, I would suggest that if someone had indeed survived the crucifixion at this stage, they would be needing an intensive care unit. So Matthew's account of the empty tomb uh, has a ring of truth uh, about it. Uh, and the others, uh, it seems to me, don't stack up so well. But then third, we've got the appearances 
of Jesus. Uh, on multiple occasions, different people experienced him alive bodily. The Apostle Paul, uh, and I'll quote him from 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verse 3. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, uh, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the Twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. So from our six different writers in the New Testament, we've got multiple uh, independently attested appearances. They take place at different times, uh, to different people, uh, and different places all around Jerusalem and the villages around and in Galilee uh, and so on. Each gospel makes it clear that he is physically raised. So did you notice the women grasp onto his feet uh, in Matthew's account? Or in Luke and John, he eats with his disciples. Each of the gospels also makes it clear that his, the nature of his new body is transformed. So he passes through barriers uh, like walls. He travels great distances extremely fast. But, like with the empty tomb, uh, many people uh, have advocated non-supernatural alternative explanations. And the main one that I've come across is that the disciples must have had some kind of collective abnormal grief reaction, some kind of acute psychological event that included hallucinations and delusions. Well, as a, as a former psychiatrist, I have to say I find this theory interesting, uh, but ultimately unpersuasive. For a start, you wouldn't expect uh, all these different people to have the same hallucinations uh, on different occasions at different times of day. And of course, not all of them would have shared the intense grief uh, of the 12 disciples. I think it's interesting, actually, that Paul mentions Jesus' brother James. Uh, and we know from the Gospels that James was not a believer in Jesus while Jesus was alive. But later he becomes the chief elder of the church in Jerusalem. Something happened uh, to change his view. And Paul suggests uh, it was a resurrection appearance. But also, these experiences that the disciples had are recorded as only occurring in a 40-day period uh, after Easter, and then they stop suddenly and don't happen again, apart from to Paul. Abnormal grief reactions uh, to terrible trauma, uh, where people cannot accept what has happened or cannot believe what has happened, uh, typically take much longer to subside. Terrible experiences like hallucinations or flashbacks may continue for a couple of years or longer. They don't just stop suddenly after 40 days to be replaced by joy. In fact, if someone is having some kind of traumatic stress reaction, often uh, it's delayed, in fact. The initial period is simply of, of shock uh, and uh, just not at all uh, kind of um, recognising and computing it at all. So it doesn't really fit uh, with the accounts uh, of uh, what we have in the New Testament. So, that's the third uh, main piece of evidence, the appearances uh, of Jesus. And then finally, the disciples believed 
passionately that he rose, despite having every reason not to. Some years ago, I watched a BBC TV documentary about the resurrection. Um, it was ages ago now, actually. A presenter, a guy called Mark Tully, was presenting it. He was uh, somewhat of a sceptic, um, but he concluded the programme uh, by saying that he concluded that something amazing, something even miraculous must have happened to convert these simple fishermen into the most effective mission movement the world has ever known. What else explains the explosive rise of Christianity? What explains the zeal, the passion in the face of hostility, the willingness to die uh, rather than deny that Jesus rose from the dead? It doesn't fit at all with the idea that these were some kind of post-traumatic stress uh, reactions. How does that enable someone to be so transformed that they are full of joy uh, and so effective uh, in what they do? And if they made it all up, would they die for something they knew was a lie? Surely under the pressure of the persecution that was to come, someone would have cracked uh, and admitted it was a hoax. And especially, you can imagine, their conscience. Jesus uh, made such a big point of always telling the truth. Uh, and there's nothing like uh, uh, a guilty conscience uh, to, uh, uh, you know, rob people uh, of confidence uh, and power. There was every human reason, you see, not to believe uh, in the resurrection. Uh, for these guys, their leader was dead. Uh, the Jews of the day were not expecting a dying Messiah, let alone a rising one. Um, some people have done studies, in fact, uh, of uh, various messiahs, uh, people who claimed to be messiahs during this period, 150 to 150 BC uh, to AD. Uh, and uh, many of these uh, so-called messiahs died, uh, and their followers did one of two things. They either gave up on the whole idea of a messiah altogether, uh, or they found someone else to latch onto in the hope that they would be the one. What they didn't do, apart from in this case, was go around claiming that their Messiah had risen from the dead. That was not what uh, the Jews were expecting. Second, um, Jesus was found guilty by Israel's elders and hung on a cross. Now in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, it says clearly that Anyone who's condemned like this, particularly by the elders of Israel, uh, is shown to be under the curse of God. So they wouldn't have expected someone like that to rise. And as I said at the beginning, the Jews believed in a general resurrection at the end of the age, not in individuals uh, doing it before then. So only something absolutely earth-shattering could have produced uh, the new Christian movement and Matthew supplies the explanation for this transformation. In particular, uh, look down at the end and we see Jesus' final appearance to the disciples and the commission that he gave them. Verse 18. Then Jesus came to the disciples and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age.
Well, what is the best explanation for all of these things? Let's just summarise. Only Jews believed in the resurrection. This couldn't have come from any other source. But no Jews believed you could be raised in advance of the resurrection. And so therefore I suggest that the only explanation for this claim arising is that Jesus really did die and was buried. The tomb really was empty. And the risen Jesus did appear physically to his disciples and commission them to go and spread the good news. Nothing else has the explanatory power to cover uh, all the evidence. As we've seen, the non-supernatural alternatives uh, are fanciful at best. The only reason, I think, at the end of the day, why someone would stick with any of those alternatives, uh, which are implausible, is that if they are just not at all convinced that something supernatural could possibly happen. But just think about it for a moment. If at all you think that it's possible that there is a real God who's created this universe and who runs it, then it's not, a, not implausible, is it, that he might have control over particles and be able uh, to do something miraculous. Indeed, think about Jesus. He made such amazing claims to be God, claims that would have been considered blasphemy if they weren't true, uh, and he claimed to be dying for our sins. And so he had to be raised from the dead, didn't he? Uh, if these things were true. If he wasn't raised from the dead, it would indicate they were false. So I submit that the evidence forces us inexorably to believe in the glorious news. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. It is the supreme fact of history. To fail to adjust our lives around him means irreparable loss. But to turn and trust in him means unassailable, everlasting gain. Let's pray. Lord of all power and life, who through the mighty resurrection of your Son overcame the old order of sin and death to make all things new in him, Grant that we, being dead to sin and alive to you in Jesus Christ, may reign with him in glory, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be praise and honour, glory and might, now and in all eternity. Amen.